and welcome to Recu Perfection, a podcast for parents, teachers, and human beings that's all about raising kids in an achievement-based society and embracing failure and imperfection with others and, of course, ourselves. For today's episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Chris Loper. Chris Loper is the creator of becomingbetter.org, which is all about self-improvement that actually works. As a behavioral change coach, he helps people develop better habits by teaching them to adopt helpful mindsets and effective strategies. Chris also writes the blog for Northwest Educational Services, which is dedicated to helping parents support their children academically and helping students become better learners. He lives in Seattle, Washington, and we did this interview over the phone. I hope that you guys can understand everything okay. It was my first time doing this particular recording setup, uh, so it's not as high quality as when I do in-person interviews, but... um, nothing's perfect and this episode certainly isn't so i hope that you guys enjoy uh and that you get something out of it here's chris hey chris how's it going awesome how are you good thank you so much for doing this today oh you're welcome thanks for having me on yeah i was totally stoked that you said yes (laughs) i just wanted to start by asking whether you grew up with perfectionistic or achievement oriented parents um, yeah, uh, my parents are both wonderful people, um, and they're two very different people. Uh, so I learned a different sort of perfectionism from each of them. My, my mom used to do the classic thing where if you're going to have company over, she would run around and make sure the house looked perfect. Um, I think this is something lots of people do. Um, yep, and they don't necessarily, <laughs> yeah. And most people don't realize like the message that it's sending to their kids. Um, it sort of says the message is like, it's not okay that the house isn't perfect. So we're going to put on this facade at the last minute and present ourselves to the world as different from how we really are. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, that's not my mom's fault. Like that's super common because it's what our culture teaches us to do. Uh, it's like what our culture expects, uh, from us, especially of like women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and then my dad uh, is a totally different case where he was someone who, to me, uh, growing up, he just seemed to be perfect. Like he would work a 60-hour week and then still have the energy for sports and chores and friends. And he would have projects like remodeling the kitchen or building a new deck, and they would always work out beautifully. And basically, like I never saw him struggle. Mm. So. So in him, I had this really good role model that I felt like I could never live up to. That's interesting because um, you do talk about modeling for our kids, uh, modeling mistakes and failures. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I know now that he did struggle and he does struggle with things, um, but that I never got to see it. And and so like that's one thing that in my work with parents, I encourage is, for parents to be more open about their challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times parents have, you know, internal internalized struggles, like then they work it all out in their head. And what I would encourage parents to do is sort of verbalize that inner dialogue. So kids get to hear you like working it out and the fact that it's just not easy. Yeah. And you also talk about, being able to ask for help, like letting your kids see you asking for help. And that was the one that mm-hmm. really got me 
Like, why is that one so hard? <laughs> right. Because um, we're supposed to just be able to do it all on our own, which is not how humans work. Mm. We're a tribal species. Yeah, that piece of trying to be hyper independent. Right. When really we're interdependent by nature, we're really built to work together. I totally agree. I was just reading something by the Dalai Lama that was talking about um, how Western culture is so much more independent than a lot of Eastern cultures and how that's, yeah. it really inhibits our ability to be happy because we don't feel connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. We don't, we're not raised in our culture to be like part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think that's pretty fundamental to feeling satisfied with your life. Um, and then another part of my childhood was that I have an older brother. Um, so my older brother, Nick, uh, he wholeheartedly embraced academic perfectionism. And he was this overachieving valedictorian. Um, and so that was sort of like the default expectation for me. Because that's what he was doing. That's tough. And my response to that was just to swing way in the opposite direction and try to do the bare minimum. Yep. <laughs> um, and um, so I did actually end up doing really well in school, but my overarching goal was to like put in as little effort as possible in order to get good grades. And although it kind of sounds like I was rejecting the achievement culture, I was actually pretty deep in it. Um, cause I realize now that the point of school is to learn how to learn and explore ideas and learn how to work. And I missed out on all those growth opportunities cause my whole focus was on like getting good grades while doing as little as possible. That's so interesting. So it's like you had the same idea, like that you had to be perfect, but you went about it a completely different way than your brother. Yeah, I was trying to optimize for effort <laughs> and and kind of, and I did not have a growth mindset at all. Yeah, you talk about that in your, your definition of perfectionism, which I've never seen anyone break it down quite like this into four parts. Mm -hmm. um, and that is like your second part. You talk about, um, you say a perfectionist sees herself as a finished product that cannot be changed. Not surprisingly, perfectionism is associated with having a fixed mindset, which is a belief that you're stuck with whatever your current ability levels are. Yeah. So can you explain mm -hmm. like why a growth mindset as opposed to fixed mindset is so helpful in working with perfectionism? Yeah. So for people who don't know, uh, this is from Stanford's Carol Dweck. Uh, she has a book called Mindset about uh, cultivating a growth mindset. Uh, growth mindset is believing that you can get better um, at anything uh, with effort and strategy, like, and you can get smarter or more skilled at anything, um, which is factually true. Like, that's just how the brain works. Our brains are really dynamic and they're capable of that growth. Um, but our culture and, um, uh, you know, our upbringing often cultivates in us a uh, a fixed mindset, which is that belief that you're just stuck the way you are. And people with a fixed mindset basically see themselves as this finished product that is a, awaiting judgment from the world. So 
they don't think they can get better. So they have to worry about like presenting themselves in a very careful way so that they get seen in the best light. Whereas if you have a growth mindset, your objective is to um, just try stuff and work on your growth and improvement. And it's okay that you're a beginner at something, you know, or it's okay that you're a work in progress. So you'll put yourself out there just as you are and you'll get real feedback and you'll actually be able to improve. Yeah, I love that. And uh, another thing that you say is that perfectionism is an all or nothing mindset, Um, like either you're a total success or a complete failure. And that makes that growth mindset really difficult to develop because every time you, you know, have one small challenge, it can feel like, well, I'm just a total failure now and you want to give up. Like, how do Uh you work with that black and white mindset? So uh, there's a a fun game I play with when I work with students, uh, which is, um, you know, students will say things like, I can't do this. And you get to go, oh, I hear you saying you can't do it yet. Um, Just pretend you hear them wrong. Uh Or they're saying like, you know, this is just too hard. And I'm like, I hear you saying it's new, that you're a beginner. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, I, you know, I'm just not any good at this. I'm like, so you're saying you need to practice. And so I just, you know, reframe that stuff um, into something that lays out like, what are the steps? What would be the thing that would produce some growth? And also, you know, uh, when you're giving feedback to people like students um, or your kids, naming what they did right, because usually they didn't do everything wrong. And, um, you know, when you're a perfectionist, you focus on the thing that went wrong. And if, you know, 99 out of 100 things went right and one thing went wrong, you think it's a complete failure. It's just pointing out for them all the things that they did right can help. Yeah, I always try to do that as well with, I teach music lessons and that comes up so much. Um, You know, a kid plays it and they play one note wrong and then they, you know, hit their head against the piano and they start over and, and I'm like, hey, that was like really good. And sometimes like that note was that they thought was, you know, the mistake because it wasn't written in the Mm -hmm. music. I'm like, that actually was a really interesting change. And like, let's explore that. Like you're going to be a jazz Um, pianist. And just trying to be, (laughs) yeah, just being excited about, right. You can never play jazz if you're always sticking to them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's starting to get excited more about the things that went well and trying to be proud of yourself and seeing how you're growing um, so that, you know, kids are really seeing that they are being successful. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you work with adults too, where you have to like let them see their progress. Yes. Let them see how much they've accomplished and how far they've come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I often work with adults on behavioral change and it might be something like uh, starting a meditation habit or exercising more. And usually we'll use an effort tracker where they're keeping track of how often they're doing it. And, you know, we'll start out and they'll set some goal. Like I want to do this exercise four times a week, or I want to meditate every day. And, you know, they come see me two weeks later and they go like, you know, I only did it twice a week or I've only been meditating every other day. And I go like, well, is that more than you were doing before? 
because that's awesome. You know, they, they think, oh, I didn't reach this high goal I set for myself, but if you made progress, like, you should celebrate that. Definitely. I love that way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people, that's why it's so hard to develop new habits, because you start trying, and then you, maybe, maybe you are really successful at the very beginning, and then you have, like, one day where you don't meditate, or something and then you feel like oh well now it's all over (laughs) now it's the end and now I give up and I can't do this (laughs) yeah (laughs) so where do you think this idea of perfect came from you also say in your the third part of your four-part definition of perfectionism Mm -hmm. you say that um inherent to perfectionism is the belief that the perfect ideal actually exists and like you said it's like we're awaiting Um, criticism yeah and we're like this finished product but I was thinking like perfection doesn't exist anywhere in nature and I I don't know have you thought about where it came from the short answer is probably that it's um it comes from media um we live in a unique time in human history where we're we're bombarded with uh like photoshopped images of celebrities um, and social media profiles that people really carefully curate. So they, they only give this kind of image of a, a flawless life. You know, we see magazine covers and we see movies and TV shows that portray things that just, that are just little snapshots of, of an idealized life. That's not really how life is. Yeah, like something that we put on a pedestal and then view as the standard, mm-hmm. like that we have to try to strive for. Yeah, and we do it when we present um, like the stories of people um, who have been very successful, like someone who wins a gold medal in the Olympics or some great scientist who invents or something or discovers something amazing. We mostly just look at their achievement. And we pay very little attention to the struggle and the failures they had along the way. Yeah, I was just thinking about this idea yesterday that we see sometimes somebody doing exactly what we do want to do. Like maybe you're a swimmer and you do want to be in the Olympics or whatever, but you think like, well, this person did it, but that could never be me. Like you see these stories and they're instead of being inspirational, they're demotivational. Yeah. Like, why is it that we, we think, well, because this other person, it's possible for them, but it's impossible for me? Um, I think that would go back to the fixed mindset thing. If, if we don't see ourselves as having the strength or the skill or the talent to do the thing that we see someone else doing, if we don't currently have those abilities and we have a fixed mindset, then, you know, we're going to think that it's impossible for us to do them. And that's exactly why I think it's so important for um, people to confront their perfectionism. I know it's been important for me because now I'm doing so many things that I never thought that I would do, um, as opposed to, you know, before I realized it, like my perfectionism in college, I was just living such a small life because I, I only 
would allow myself to do things that I thought that I could be extremely good at. If I tried something new and wasn't good, I would immediately quit. (laughs) I took this Argentine tango class and I took one class and I didn't pick up on it immediately. And I I withdrew from the class. Like I dropped it immediately. Uh (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, you didn't give yourself permission to be a beginner. Yeah. And it's opened up so many things now that I see um, that I'm just, I'm not afraid of, you know, sucking at something. Right. <laughs> but I have to keep reminding myself every day, like, it's okay to suck. Yeah. Like, it's okay if this isn't. Like, even for this podcast episode, I had a new setup and I was like fretting about <laughs> it. And my mom was like, wait, you're being a perfectionist about your perfectionism <laughs> podcast. Like, <laughs> look at yourself. I was like, you're right. You're right. It's not going to be perfect. <laughs> it's almost like we never really end up doing anything if we are so stuck in whether or not it's going to be perfect yes yes um there is this great teacher who used to teach in uh inner city chicago in the 1980s and she's she wrote a couple books her name is marva collins and and she said that if you can't make a mistake you can't make anything that's so good. Yeah, because you know, if you're if you're perfectionist, then you then you see that mistakes and failures are these terrible, like life-shattering things. Then you're going to try your best to avoid having those happen. Um, you know, the best way to d- not do anything wrong is to just do nothing at all. And how scary is that to imagine just never doing anything? Yeah, <laughs> it's terrifying. Uh-huh. I felt like that before, just absolutely frozen. Mm-hmm that perfection is paralysis thing. So your last um, part of your definition is that perfectionists believe that they cannot pursue excellence without maintaining their worldview. They believe abandoning perfectionism means settling for mediocrity. Yeah. For me, this really speaks to that voice of the inner critic. I know I've definitely thought that like, if I didn't have that harsh voice driving me to constantly achieve, overly critiquing all of my work, then I would end up lazy and unproductive can you speak to why this isn't true yeah um so part of it's that perfectionism can be paralyzing and make you procrastinate so that you won't actually do the work that would take you towards excellence um you know if your goal is to do something excellent even perfect then but if you if you're afraid to do anything until it's going to be perfect you're never going to do anything. So you'll, you'll make more progress if you keep your eyes on the process of, of moving forward than if you focus on, you know, this idealized outcome of perfect. Right, because a lot of times when we start things, maybe with some end goal in mind, we end up in a completely different place, in an exciting place, mm-hmm. if we just stay with the process taking one step at a time. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite teachers is Tal Ben-Shahar. He, uh, he taught positive psychology at Harvard. Um, and uh, I watched his course that's uh, up on YouTube. And he explains that the, the healthy way to see the idea of perfect is to see it as a guiding star um, rather than as a distant shore. So a guiding star points the way, but you know you'll never get there. Um, but if you imagine that perfect is some distant shore where you can actually arrive, you'll always be disappointed. 
I like that. So it's not really ever worrying about a destination, but just keeping that higher goal in our minds and letting it guide us. Yeah. I think it was Vince Lombardi said something like, we will chase perfection and along the way we will catch excellence. Yeah. And it's kind of funny in this whole wreck your perfection thing, because the idea is to kind of go against this achievement culture that I believe we live in. But at the same time, it's, it's helping people be brave so that they can do more. So I'm thinking to myself, is the whole goal so that people can achieve things? I, and I don't think that's exactly what it is. I think it's, it's more to help them live authentically to themselves. Yeah. But sometimes that means achieving certain things, like writing a book, if you're a writer or something. Like if you have this potential to do something and it's your real dream to do that thing and perfectionism prevents you from doing it, you're going to be really unhappy. Right. That unhappiness piece is so big. And gosh, how many of us get stuck in that? Like this, like, well, this is my life now and this is just how it is. Right. And we we keep in the back of our minds these things, these grand things that we really want to do. Like you said with your Engage uh -huh. idea yeah. that you had for four years, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes you just have to make yourself do it on a short timeline and hit publish when you know it's not going to be that good just to get it out there. So how did you do that? How did you make yourself do the thing that you put off for so long? Um, you just said like, I only have this amount of time. So it's funny. Um, it was an idea I got um, out of uh, a book. I think it was Tim Ferriss's four hour work week book. And I'm not a super big fan of Tim Ferriss because he pushes, kind of uh quick fixes um and he's a little bit of a bro a bro's bro i'm, I'm really not <laughs> uh, you know uh but but in that yeah. book yeah i know what you yeah mean. uh but there was a real gem in that book where he he said that the the amount of the complexity of a project will grow in accordance with how much time you allow for it so like you know i wanted to make this website about all the different ways to play jenga and uh, and it was like, if I gave myself six months to do it, it becomes a six month level complicated project and then I'll never do it. So I was like, okay, so I bet I could make a website in a day. So I just gave myself eight hours to have a product, you know, out there online and it worked. I had to keep it simple. Yeah. The website looks great. <laughs> I looked it up and I was like, oh, Jenga. Yeah, you can do that with Jenga? <laughs> yeah, so I want to get more into this, the parenting piece of all of yeah. this. Um, so you recently wrote, <clears throat> excuse me, you recently wrote something about Mr. Rogers and included some wonderful quotes from him on perfectionism and parenting. And I love this one. Moving confidently toward independence depends to a great extent on there being a sure foundation of early love to build on and a fundamental trust that help will be there when we need it. Love and trust are what most enable children to risk trying to be themselves. Mm -hmm. So in order to take risks, ultimately, 
facing their fears and being brave kids need to experience unconditional love yeah um mm -hmm. and knowing that no matter if they succeed or fail you'll be there for them with open arms yeah it seems like that requires a lot of patience <laughs> and i'm wondering how you cultivate that kind of patience with your own child hmm. well i don't have children so Oh, I saw a picture on your website. That's it with my like nephew. You had a son. Yeah, that's my nephew. Oh, Max. it's your nephew. Yeah. yeah. I guess I should have started with that question. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> but you said you teach. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, my day job, uh, which is kind of a night job, is I work as an academic coach for Northwest Educational Services. Um, so I work with students all the time, and and we interact with their parents. Um, but then in the summertime. Uh, my boss and I co-teach a series of classes for parents, um, and so and my boss does have kids, and so we, I get a lot of wisdom from him, and we work with, uh, we work with parents, on on all kinds of things, but especially the growth mindset and perfectionism pieces. Have you seen that be really effective with parents? Yeah, um, it is if they, you know, if they'll get in, if they'll really kind of take it to heart and and do the the tough work of adopting you know, those shifts, um, because it's very hard to change, you know, the way you interact with people and the way you think and feel, you know, if it's been habitual for years, then it's pretty tough to make shifts. And we sort of are, you know, our big message is, is to have parents lead by example and kind of work on themselves first. Um, mm -hmm. and so, a big one is uh, in this arena is getting parents to stop being so hard on themselves when they screw up. Um, and parents are pretty darn hard on themselves, especially when they screw up in relation to their kids. Because they feel like they're going to screw them up for right. life. Right. You know, the stakes <laughs> seem real high, you know. <laughs> it's like, you're not going to break your kid. It's okay. <laughs> they're pretty resilient. <laughs> um you know, your kids are always learning from you. They're always watching you and the way you treat yourself is going to send a bigger message to them about how to treat themselves than necessarily any words you would tell to the child. Right. I think so many people think that they can be cruel to themselves and yet be kind to their kids and maybe their loved ones, but it just doesn't seem to work like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this goes, this kind of brings us around to um, the uh, another idea from Tal Ben-Shahar, which is the permission to be human thing that I love so much. Yes, I've seen you write that multiple times. So he was big. He said it all the time in that class that it, it's so important to give yourself permission to be human, and which is really saying like, you know, I'm not perfect. No one's ever been perfect. It's okay. And it seems so much simpler in theory than it actually does in practice oh yeah, oh, yeah it's progress it's a, it's, a, it's a thing to work on all the time yeah like I you know as a music teacher and musician it's easy for me to tell my kids you know you're gonna mess up in this performance you're gonna have some things happen on stage it's always it's never gonna go perfectly because nothing is perfect but then when I get on stage I'm like, oh, God, I really hope I don't mess this up. <laughs> and I make one mistake, and I'm like, ah, I'm sure everybody noticed that. And, right. you know, now it's the end. Like, I have to coach myself the same way yeah. that I talk to them. Mm -hmm. 
And I think... And it's just a constant choice. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really helpful to tell kids about that struggle that you just described. You know, let them know, like, yeah, I have Mm -hmm. the same nervousness about trying to come off as perfect. You know, I have the same worries about making mistakes in front of other people. Yeah, I love to tell them stories about times where I've made really big mistakes. Yeah. Like when it comes recital time and mm-hmm. they're like, oh, I don't want to go on stage. I'm like, oh, you want to hear about <laughs> a time that I really had a bad performance? Although then I describe my worst performance ever, which truly was a sight to behold. <laughs> it was my first <laughs> solo show and I... Like, I remember I broke my friend's guitar. I hit myself in the head with the guitar while I was taking it off. I forgot lyrics multiple times, had to start over a song, uh, had to then move on from that song and not finish it at all. Just about nothing. Everything went wrong Uh that could go wrong. But by the end of that story, I I have some kids who were like, oh, I feel better now. And I have some kids that are like, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Right. You know, they're they're more freaked out because they're like, well, if that happened to you, then of course, I'm just going to have the worst time. But what I always say is that, you know, I had friends and family there and they still loved me afterwards. It's not like because I messed up, they were like, I now banish you from my life forever. It was like, (laughs) hey, you did your best. And I'm like, yes, I did. And the embarrassment wore off. And now it's a hilarious story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's real helpful to have, you know, for kids to see that adults screw up. It's it's kind of common in our experience working with parents that parents want to hide their mistakes from their kids because they want to model being excellent. They want to model being perfect. Um, and I think that's a big mistake. Now, what, what do you think comes into play there, though, with um, parents having conflicts maybe with each other? Mm-hmm. Because that is tough, I know, for kids to see their parents, for instance, fighting or arguing. Yeah. Well, yes. And ideally, you know, if you have an argument with your spouse, it's, you know, in a respectful, healthy manner. You know, but even if it's not, then, you know, talking to your kids afterwards to let them know that things are okay. You know, that it's not their fault, that you still love them that you still love your spouse, that just sometimes people miscommunicate and don't get along and and they don't work it out in a very mature way. Yeah, it's not always easy to be mature, to like be the example that we want our kids to see. It takes so much effort, I think, and patience. Which is just another opportunity to model imperfection. You know, if you get that wrong and you and you get super emotional and, and you know, you're not you know, you're not acting very mature Later, you reflect on it and you sit down with your kids and talk to them. They're like, so earlier, you saw what happened. I'm not super proud of that. And I want you to know, like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I think I screwed up and I'm sorry. Yeah, that is huge. The apologizing. Mm-hmm, yeah. I don't think we really say sorry and I forgive you enough. Yeah. Like, we're so afraid of being perceived as weak or Mm -hmm. imperfect that sometimes we do mess up. And I know I've done this where I'm like, oh, God, I'm just going to hold my breath and hope that we can just all move on and um, (laughs) that I don't have to let go of my pride so that I can just 
not apologize. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then yeah. as soon as I realize I'm I'm being dumb <laughs> <laughs> and it's you know, it, it really affects relationships when we are like so set in our ways that we can't just admit being wrong. Yeah. Or having done something mean, we all do yeah. it. You know, you you can't be perfect. Well, you obviously can't be perfect, but you just can't be kind at all times, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's more giving yourself permission to be human. Giving yourself permission to screw it up. Do you have, like, a tagline that you say to yourself? Um, I have a lot of things I say to myself every day during my loving-kindness meditation. Um, mm, can I hear some of them? Um... Uh, yeah. So like the uh, loving kindness meditation starts with yourself and then expands outward, um, to your friends and family and to strangers and to people you don't like, and eventually to the whole world. Um, and it's just sort of a way to cultivate, um, positive thinking around, um, yourself and others. Um, so it starts with saying, I love myself over and over again, like three times. And then saying, um, I will help myself. And then I will not harm myself. And then I will be kind to myself. And then I will not judge myself. And so that's part of my, you know, full program of self, self-help is, is saying those things to myself over and over again. And, and it feels a little empty when you first start, but eventually your mind kind of soaks in it and it starts to believe it. Do you feel like at first when you started that practice, you didn't really believe it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, and I still would harm myself or judge myself and I wouldn't be kind to myself. You know, I wasn't, and I didn't always do things to help myself. But then eventually like, out and about during the day, if I had an opportunity to judge myself, I might, that thought might pop up in my mind automatically and be like, I will not judge myself. And then you go, oh, right. I could not. That would be better. Mm, so it becomes practice. Yeah. Yeah. Or it becomes a habit. I mean, I mm -hmm. meant to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the practice becomes a habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long have you been doing that? Uh, three years. That's amazing. And where did you get that um, idea, the loving kindness practice? It is a kind of a classic part of uh, Buddhism practice. Um, there's, you know, there's mindfulness meditation, which is usually a, kind of a sitting and focusing on your breath meditation, which I also do. Um, and then they encourage a loving kindness meditation. Sometimes it's called loving friendliness or metta meditation which is mm -hmm. aimed at cultivating compassion for yourself and others. And there's lots of examples of it out there. I kind of read some and then wrote my own because I, I needed a personalized version. That's really cool that you developed your own. I have not done the loving kindness practice. Well, I've done some guided meditations on developing loving kindness. Mm -hmm. um, I use the app Headspace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and then lately I've been just doing the mindfulness more, but I just read a book on compassion 
and how we can live with more compassion. And it, it seems to me the ultimate cure for all perfectionism yeah. is that compassion. And I, I was thinking about how I can develop it more. Because um, obviously the mindfulness practice, you're not really supposed to be thinking so much. Like you allow yourself to yeah. think. But I was that makes sense that you have a separate practice for that. Mm-hmm. You said you do it for like 16 minutes a day? That's my breathing meditation right now is up to 16. Um, and loving kindness meditation oh. is just it's a routine to speak through in your mind. Um, if I stay really focused and I don't lose track of what I'm doing, it takes about eight minutes. But, you know, if my mind wanders off mm-hmm. and I'd be like, wait, where was I? Okay, back to it. Then it could take as long as 20 minutes. <laughs> I really like that. Um <laughs> I just had a thought the other day while I was meditating that um, because I, I've heard that, you know, you it's like you're sitting there in a room and you allow your thoughts to be like characters that walk in one door and kind of leave the other <laughs> door. Sure. Um, and so you, you just kind of observe them. But it I've tried a lot of things that weren't working. And the other day I came up with a visualization that worked a little better for mm-hmm. me. And it, I imagined myself the conscious mind as the uh, like the teacher in a classroom mm-hmm. of small yeah. children that are all sitting there and the thoughts are like each each kid that you know raises their hand and then blurts something crazy <laughs> out like some kids are going to be like oh, that's great. i just puked at my birthday cake and then the other kids you know and you're gonna be like thank you so much for that tommy yeah. um, what are we having we for will lunch? talk about that later <laughs> <laughs> Yes, exactly. And then some of them are really thoughtful and ask good questions. But to every single person, you say, thank you for that contribution. Because um, I realized I wasn't being kind to my own thoughts. Yes, yes. When they would arise, uh-huh. I would think I'm not supposed to be thinking. But I realized I needed to welcome them and be kind to nice. them. Nice. I like that a lot. Because that kind of kindness, I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that to a friend, right, who tells us I'm feeling anxious today and you'd be like no you shouldn't feel that (laughs) stop feeling right (laughs) and so why do we do it to ourselves we feel like well i shouldn't be feeling this negative feeling we just try to push it away and obviously buddhism says um or not obviously to many i guess um but if if you are familiar with buddhism Mm -hmm. then that idea of resisting is what makes makes it worse that suffering worse yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i like the instead of acceptance yeah. and i think not just acceptance but compassionate acceptance yeah absolutely you know if you're feeling pain in some way you know emotional or physical pain looking at it the way you know you would look upon your child feeling that way is you know you go like man i am really hurting right now and you know being there for yourself mm-hmm. whereas what you know i often do is get upset with myself for being upset turns out it's not very helpful it's definitely not (laughs) and i i like that in the loving kindness practice you begin with yourself you begin with giving love to yourself um before you move on to giving love to other people yeah yeah you have to um you know that you have to take care of yourself in order to be able to take care of other people. Um, and it's, you know, next to impossible to love other people if you don't love yourself. Right, like that critic that 
maybe we have internally, it really externalizes itself in moments when we sometimes least expect it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if you can't give yourself permission to be human and you're really judgmental towards yourself, then you're going to do that to other people and vice versa. If mm-hmm. you do it to other people, it'll come back and you'll, eventually you'll be looking in the mirror and doing it to yourself. I like that word permission, just offering that space mm-hmm. and allowing, you know, just saying like, it's okay to be human. It's okay to make mistakes. And that permission, I don't. that's just like a powerful word, giving ourselves permission and giving other people permission as well. Yeah. It's, I think we can extend that into so many aspects of our lives. You know, we just assume, for instance, with a fixed mindset, like, this is my life, and I could never do this thing that I really want to do, like, start this instrument. Because it's not okay to be a beginner. It's not okay to get help. It's not okay to use strategies. It's just supposed to be easy. Yeah, and, and I think we sometimes we just need to say, like, we just need to give ourselves permission to do those things that would make us so happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, are we trying to make ourselves miserable? Because <laughs> <laughs> like we think that we would be more miserable if we were failing at something new, but actually we are probably causing ourselves more pain by never trying in the first place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I, I wanted to circle back to the idea of unconditional love Mm -hmm. because something struck me as I was thinking about this because for parents who you know really want the best for their kids they really want them to grow and be their own person um, but also learn how to follow authority and these things that are so important to be a citizen yeah where does that line, I guess, get drawn when it comes to the idea of tough love versus unconditional love? Well, um, unconditional love is not the same as unlimited freedom or or mm. indulgence. Um, you know, if your child wants to stay up late, you know, when they should when it's past their bedtime, you know, it would make the child happy if they stayed up late, but it's not what's best for them. So you express love by putting them to bed. You know, you know if I want to eat cake for breakfast, um, but, and that might make me happy in the moment, um, but that's not being loving towards myself because, you know, what's best for me in the long run is to have real food for breakfast. Oh, man, are you saying that cake isn't real food? (laughs) (laughs) I love eating cake for breakfast. (laughs) Yeah, no, I see what you're saying, that love encompasses more than just constantly giving yourselves or others permission. It's looking forward a bit into what's really going to help that person and wanting what's best for that person. Exactly, yeah. And when you're the parent in the position of, you know, you have a position of power with your kids, like it, you know, it's your responsibility to facilitate their long-term health and long-term growth. Yeah. That's kind of your ultimate 
job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just so, I think it's hard to find that balance for a lot of people. And actually, this moves me to another idea of yours because like we want our kids to be happy, mm-hmm. I think, all the time. Uh, but you talk about letting kids know that bad feelings are okay. Uh-huh. And I've noticed that people don't want to deal with their kids being upset sometimes. I know when I've done a lot of nannying like or teaching, like, I don't want my kids to be upset. Right. Um, but how do we teach kids to accept their emotions? That's a great question. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how we would, how we do it other than, you know, when they feel a certain way and they're expressing that feeling is just talk to them about it and without trying to change how they're feeling, let them, let them feel it, you know, fully. It's like the meditation practice Mm -hmm. where you allow that pain instead of resisting it. Yeah. You know, if you let a feeling run its course, then you'll recover. Our, Our brains are really good at returning to a baseline. Um, you know, we kind of hover around a certain level of, you know, a certain emotional level and then something good happens and we, we rise up and we're happy and then eventually it fades away and we're back to normal and then something really bad happens and we're, you know, we're really sad and upset for a while and then we come back to normal. That's what will happen as long as we let the feelings run their course. And it's if we resist the feelings and we try not to have them, we try to force them back, then it's kind of like a Chinese finger trap situation. Doing the intuitive thing will make it worse. Well, and I think teaching a kid, I know I grew up with the idea that I had to be happy all the time, especially when I was in public. Yeah. Um, and when you really teach somebody that, I think a lot of us grow up with that idea mm-hmm. that, you know, good feelings are good, bad feelings bad, uh-huh. and don't display those bad feelings. And it's this idea of perfection is so big, I think, on not letting others see us be vulnerable and imperfect. And part of that is like displaying your true emotions and being authentic to what you're really going through. Mm -hmm. You know, if we could teach our kids that it's okay to be upset, then I think that they ultimately can grow up knowing they can show others that they're, that they're upset. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's really healthy to, to feel upset sometimes it would be weird and inhuman to be happy all the time we have all our emotions <laughs> but isn't that what we want <laughs> <laughs> you know it's weird that we say we want that but then it it really wouldn't work um our negative feelings and negative emotions like they evolved for a purpose they they tell us important things if i'm you know if i'm sad it it's kind of saying to me like I need something different. Like maybe I need social support right now. Maybe I need to talk to someone about this. Or, you know, if I'm upset that something didn't go well, well then that's my brain saying, hey, figure this out. Make it go better next time. Like what can we learn from this? Yeah, and it's hard. It's even harder, I think, today than maybe it was in the past because of how many options we have at our fingertips and just immediate relief for numbing Uh the pain that we're going through and so it's like we feel like we have to be 
strong at least I feel like this as a recovering perfectionist that feeling of and I'm letting it go but needing to always put on that face for people and then I I shove everything deep down Mm -hmm. you know I can go to work like in a crisis and look like there's nothing wrong yeah and then get home and then I'm like well I could deal with this now or I could watch Netflix Uh and have a beer yeah or I don't like beer actually (laughs) Uh, I got that from Brene Brown. Yeah. She's like, yeah, have a banana nut muffin and a beer. <laughs> I relate with that so hard. <laughs> it's like we, we learn to shove it down mm-hmm. and numb. Yeah. Because we somehow think like we're not supposed to unload onto other people. But that's what people are for. You know, helping us out. That's the idea of community. Yeah. Back to interdependence. That's That's how we evolved. That's how we're supposed to live. Yeah. Easier said than done. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> the book that I was reading, the Dalai, Dalai Lama was talking about uh, how many Americans don't even know their neighbors. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm totally there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. We are constantly fighting an uphill battle against our culture. But, but the good news is that, like, it's deep in our nature to not be perfectionists. And it's deep in our nature to have a growth mindset because we're all born that way. Like nobody would know how to speak or walk if, if we were perfectionists, you know, from birth, Mm -hmm. because the only way to learn how to talk and walk is to just fail over and over again in front of everyone. Right. And they don't even care at all. They don't, they don't think about it. Doesn't occur to them. (laughs) And, you know, as they grow up, we instill in kids, you know, a growth, a fixed mindset and, and perfectionism without even really trying to do it. We just, it just happens. So well, we can get out of it and it, it just takes kind of a patient, you know, strategic ongoing process. Yeah. I do believe that kids really are born brave and fearless mm-hmm. in so many ways. Obviously they have the biological fears yeah. that accompany having a human body and not wanting to, you know, yeah feel pain and fall off a cliff and i think falling is one that you're born with Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's like they they are brave and then it's just our job to help them continue being um mistake tolerant yeah instead of shaming which i think we shame a lot in the school system Mm -hmm. and at home in some environments yeah and we're you know kids start to learn that mistakes are bad or at a certain age. Yeah, right. And what they mostly see in grown-ups is grown-ups being done, as in, as in done learning and done growing, done trying new things. Parents are mostly modeling being a finished product um, out in the world. Whereas I really liked um, the woman you had on recently talking about learning how to play the bass guitar in her 40s. Mm-hmm. So her kids Kate could Hopper. see her learning something new and just sucking at it, you know, day after day. Because um, that kind of learning is rare to Sometimes see Sometimes we suck at stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. That's what you do when you're a beginner. Yeah, I just um, started a student and um, her mom mentioned briefly in passing that she also got a guitar at the same time. Oh. But she doesn't play it. And I'm like... Well, you know, if you want to take lessons, I'm happy to teach you. Uh And she's like, oh, no, I I don't think I'd have time. 
and you know I, I was encouraging her a little bit mm-hmm. and because I'm like you know you you deserve to have fun too it shouldn't be all about your kid mm-hmm. and she was like well thank you for that encouragement um and it's I think that's so hard with parenting is that we we focus so much on our kids being happy and fulfilled and doing so many different activities. Um, But then we don't allow ourselves that kind of happiness and joy Mm -hmm. to embrace new things. Yeah. And I see um, uh, a slightly different version of that at Northwest Educational Services where uh, we also offer parent coaching where parents can come in and, and learn, you know, from, from my boss, Greg, you know, kind of parenting wisdom and strategies for how to engage at home in a more productive way. And that would probably be the most efficient thing to do in a lot of cases um, in terms of a bang for your buck thing. And, um, and because the parents spend so much more time with their kids than we do. We, we might get them for an hour or two a week and they're with them all the time. Um, mm-hmm. They've got more leverage, um, but parents usually want to, they have this thing, well, no, just um, here's my kid, fix him. You know, here, 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 here's my kid, here's what's wrong here and fix it. And they're like, well, we don't do that. <laughs> we work on- Clearly my kid is the we problem. We work on growth. <laughs> That's what we do, right? And we want to support their growth. That's what we'll do. It's a slow process. <laughs> and if you want to accelerate that growth, then, you know, learning to work on your own growth would actually be the most efficient thing. Yeah. Learning to grow a little bit every day mm-hmm. and having your kids witness yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Witness that you're you're still a work in progress. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for so many words of wisdom you're so welcome um i was wondering if you have any parting wisdom for us um i guess i would say uh that um that um being imperfect means means that you're going to struggle and and when you struggle like see that not as bad see that as good Struggling is what makes us stronger. Um, so whenever th- something is really hard and when you're struggling to do it well, see that as like being at the gym. You know, it's like, oh, this is my this is my brain getting stronger. I love that. Thanks. Thank you so much for that, Chris. You're welcome. Well, I hope you have an awesome day. Thank you so much for the interview. You too. Thanks for having me on. I had an awesome conversation with Chris. I hope that you guys enjoyed today's episode. Surprisingly, we did not talk about gratitude, even though this is the Thanksgiving episode. Um, But he writes um, wonderful things about parenting and gratitude. So definitely go check out Chris at becomingbetter.org and check out his blog at Northwest Educational Services. If you want more from Wreck Your Perfection, follow me on Instagram at Wreck Your Perfection. Um, there's a website now and you can donate if you want to support the podcast and also some of the proceeds will go to, um, world food programs to help feed hungry humans around the world. So, um, I hope that you guys will join me for next week's episode. Thank you so much for hanging out and we'll see you next time. Be well, fail big, and go wreck your perfection.